So we'll begin with uh, setting our motivation. During a teaching that Venerable Children gave last October while she was teaching on the Gomchen Lam Rim, at one point she said the following, and I think it really struck everyone in the room and everyone online and everyone who has since viewed the teaching. She said, Becoming a Buddha isn't just concentration, and it isn't just realization of emptiness. A lot of the path is character development. It's developing a good character. It's learning how to be an ethical person who has a kind motivation and can cherish others more than self. So don't think of the path as gaining some super-duper experience that's out of this world. It's really about becoming a healthy human being who can function in the world without harming others and is able to benefit them. So we're trying to build our character, our inner strength, our mental clarity about what to practice and abandon and our ability to restrain from non-virtue and so forth. So let's take a few moments about what that means to each of us how important it is and what each of us are, is doing to head in that direction. So tonight we're going to be reviewing the five faults and the eight antidotes in relation to cultivating serenity. And if there's anything that you get out of this review tonight, even if it's one sentence, I think it's worthwhile. I'll be sharing things that Venerable Children has taught in the Gomchen Lam Rim. I'm going to be sharing some things that are from Geshe Sopa's fourth volume, the Lam Rim Chenmo Commentator, which this thing, this volume focuses entirely on cultivating serenity or shamatha. Then there's some beautiful passages in The Jewel of Ornament by Gompopa. I'll say a bit more about him a little bit later. And then there's a very nice introduction by Guy Newland in his book, Introduction to Emptiness. But what I'd like to do, and this may be unconventional, but bear with me, I'd like to start with a reflection. And if you're just willing to try it, um, you know, tomorrow or later tonight, you can tell me a lot was a really ridiculous thing to do. But let's give it a go. So I'm going to show you two pictures um, that were taken in the past year in Syria. They are by far not the worst. They are actually on the level of tame. So I don't know if our videographer can zoom in on this. So here's one image. This, and they're both in Aleppo. So this is a picture of a fellow sitting in his home. It's kind of still standing, but it's in a neighborhood that's been completely bombed out. And in the caption underneath this photograph, I think it says that the fellow is still listening to his little record player that somehow is working. How does that happen in a bombed-out neighborhood? So there's apparently electricity going. And then the next picture, quite astounding. This fellow is growing something. It's some vegetable that they can eat and saute and cook and steam. And the depressed area is where a barrel bomb hit. So, somehow, in this chaos, people are surviving. And they're just making it work as best as they can. Okay, so those are the images. Now you can get into your meditative posture. And imagine that you're one of those people, or you can pick someone else. Maybe you've seen other pictures. And I want you just to get the feeling of being in Aleppo, which apparently is the city that's been the worst hit in this war. So we're imagining that we're a Syrian resident and you've been witnessing the decimation, decimation of your country since the spring of 2011. And you've desperately wanted to escape. But your fear of losing your life doing so and the fact that you don't have money to pay people to get you out are enormous obstacles. And you've heard 
over the years that many people have been tricked by people promising them safe passage and then stealing all their money. They might take them half the way out of the country and then they're abandoned in a desolate place. So it seems just too dangerous. And then one day you hear about a group that will get you out of the country. It sounds too good to be true, so you start asking questions. How are these escapes done? Who are these people in this group? Is it true that the path out of the country is, is successful? And then through various means and talking to people, you find out more about the people involved and each of their stories. And in time, you find out that these people are simply dedicated to getting people to safety. There is no other agenda. And then you learn that there's no cost. There's no fee. All you have to do is show up at a certain time and place. You must be committed to following the directions of the guide. You must not bring belongings. You can't go to the bank before departure. On the day and time agreed upon, you show up with your family, consisting of two children and your elderly parent. The guide gives you precise instructions. There's no time to waste. Over the past few weeks, you've learned that the guide is trustworthy and the escape route has been traveled successfully with no casualties. It's not known how long it will take to get out of the country. But you're repeatedly told, if you follow the directions carefully, you'll get out. It's critical that you pay attention at all times to the instructions and the advice. The guide will adjust the pace according to your capacity. If along the way you give up, there's nothing more that the guide and the instructions can do for you. This plan will only work when you've decided that you must leave and that you're willing to follow the advice and the guide. So when I've seen these pictures of Syrians and I see what state that they're living in, I'm sure that everyone would desperately want to get out. And then when I look at my own mind, and I'll just speak from my point of view, because this inspired me, I often forget that samsara is a place I need to get out of. So this is just one life for these people. You know, but as we're learning in Buddhism, we're stuck in samsara. And am I truly in every moment practicing as if my hair is on fire? If I'm really honest, I think, and we're going to look at these um, faults that apply to cultivating serenity, but these faults even stop me from getting ahead in moments, in hours and days. And if I've really, really got, and sometimes I do, and I'm sure you all do, the dire situation we're in, it's sort of like we're in Syria. But here it's, it's disguised. We're living, many of us, in a very safe environment at the moment. There's no threat here at the moment. Our basic needs are beautifully met. And so I get lulled into complacency and my five senses are firing 24-7 and I'm feeding them as well as I can. And that dulls my mind. And it dulls this urge to get out. And so when I'm looking at these five faults and the antidotes, and just the way that all of the, these teachers and the venerable children, is she's just doing everything possible, you know, to wake us up and show us the antidotes and say, hey, you know what? If you do this, this, and this, and she lays it out beautifully, you'll hear it again. So I, th I just have to hear it and see it again. She shows us that we've got to get out of this mess, and here's how. 
but it's totally up to you. You know what? As much as she can practice, as much as a Buddha can practice, they can't do it for us. And so what is it going to take to crack my own ignorance so that I'm as desperate as a Syrian wanting to get out? And there's a way out. And the Buddha has laid it out and then teachers over the centuries keep, you know, explaining this over time. So we've heard these teachings before, not in just this life. I'm sure we have, and yet here I am, looking at dessert, wondering if there's enough there on that cart for me. So, anyway, that when I think about Syrians, I get inspired to practice, and I see that we're um, kind of in the same boat. So I'd like to start with a quote from Guy Newland, and this is from his book called Introduction to Emptiness. And he says this right off the bat, Buddhist texts teach that everything good in this world and beyond derives from serenity and insight. There it is, everything good in this life and beyond. Serenity or shamatha, and insight or vipassana, are special meditative qualities that a spiritual practitioner develops only after long training. They are well-developed forms of the fifth and sixth perfections, meditative stabilization, and wisdom. Serenity suppresses the disturbing and painful manifest forms of the afflictions. And in doing this, once we've got these afflictions suppressed, this, he says, creates a clear field where we can develop meditative wisdom, where we can develop a profound insight penetrating through subtler and subtler levels of self deception, so that we can eventually root out the subtlest latent forms of the afflictions. So then we're going to go and get some guidance from Geshe Sopa. And he starts off by saying, Lama Tsongkhapa says we must first understand these terms. So the nature of serenity is a stabilized mind that is able to remain on an object for as long as the meditator likes. Has anyone here had that experience? I know you're going to be too humble to say so. I have not. I'd love to have that. Put my mind on an object, a virtuous object, for as long as I like. <sighs> okay, so as we heard last week, there's nine stages to training, which Venerable Damcho laid out beautifully, which serve as the milestones for our progress in the cultivation of serenity. And the actual state of serenity is the culmination of training through these nine stages. And as you progress through these nine stages many excellent qualities arise. So we get an increasing ability of the mind to control negativities, and we have an increasing ability to stay vividly and clearly on the object of meditation without distraction or sleepiness for as long as you wish. I was going to get another prop here for tonight, but I forgot because I got distracted and I probably went and ate something. <laughs> A few years ago, Venerable Chodron, when she was teaching... No, no I'll, I'll back up. We had some guest teachers come, and there was one person in particular who would always start doing this in the teaching. That old favorite. So Venable Children in the teaching had a squirt bottle with water in it. And one time she actually did use it. And then she was threatening to use it thereafter. So this whole thing about sleepiness, we're going to hear more about. But once we've got this mind that's sharp with having cultivated serenity, that's history. Man, we're just done with that. So once serenity is achieved, there's the ability to meditate comfortably for as long as you like, since the body is in complete harmony with the mind. Ah, I'd love that too. This last quality is called the bliss of serenity, and it's a sort of a sensual pleasure. So he goes on to say, this is Lama Tsongkhapa, All successful meditation requires some degree of mental stabilization. There must be some stability for benefit to arise from any meditation, even if actual serenity is not yet achieved. So when any sort of meditation practice is used as a means to cultivate virtuous qualities, we can say that those qualities depend on the cultivation of serenity. So a few weeks ago, I heard Venerable Damcho say something that I totally agreed with. And as I was hearing these teachings that Venerable gave on how to cultivate serenity, you said it, it's like hearing science fiction. For me, it's like, great, it'll be good for somebody, but for me it's science fiction. Well, that's 
that's a stumbling block right there. We have to be convinced. And again, our teachers are going to show us how. We have to con be convinced that serenity is something we must achieve. Maybe, well, okay, so it's in a future lifetime. But right now we have to do the groundwork. We have to do the Lamrim meditations. We have to purify. We have to create virtue. We have to do all those things and then eventually we'll be in shape where these teachings are really going to make sense. And, you know, we'll be one of those people that we're looking at right now and thinking, wow, that person is so lucky. It seems so easy for them. They're just, they're just soaring. That'll be us eventually. Maybe it's you now. I can't see it. So he goes on to say, and this is Lama Tsongkhapa, Serenity and insight are the cornerstones of the Buddhist path in virtually all Buddhist traditions. The key way that the Mahayana traditions outline the path to Buddhahood is by the way of the six perfections. So Lama Tsongkhapa says, If we know the benefits of engaging in any practice and we take it to heart, we will do the practice. But it's important to do, to know these benefits of doing any activity and especially for spiritual practice. And in seeing the benefits, we're going to do it. And we also have to know about the disadvantages of not doing it. So we know this from our worldly life. We know it very well. And you can probably bring to mind a time, maybe when you were a child, where you wanted to do something so badly. And maybe your parents or your teacher even said, you know what, it's a bit too hard right now. You can't do that. You're going to have to wait till you're a little bit older. But maybe you decided, forget it. I'm not going to wait until I'm older. I'm going to learn how to do that now. So a very, very coarse example of this is when I was a kid, my parents were extremely poor. My dad was running a business, and they were just making ends meet just barely every night, every month. And I heard that one night. I heard them over talk, talking to each other and worrying about how to pay taxes and you know worrying about making getting the bill payments. And I was about six and I desperately wanted a bicycle because all my friends had a bicycle and I wanted one and my parents knew this. So my grandmother who lived in Banff, which is a tourist town, one day discovered this adult bicycle in her yard. And so she called the local police authority and said, you know what, someone's left a bike in my yard. You want to come get it? And the police didn't come get it. So I guess she phoned my mom and she said, there's a bike in my yard. I know that my granddaughter wants a bicycle. Do you want to come and get it? And so Banff is a five-hour drive away, but eventually this adult-sized bicycle arrived. Now, it's an adult-sized bicycle. Now, me as an adult, I'm not so big. So me as a six-year-old, I was a squirt. And I knew that I wanted to ride that bicycle. It was heavy. It was an adult size. And I just persisted, and that thing fell on me multiple times a day. It was painful. You know, you got this adult size. And bikes in those days weren't sleek, you know, and light. This was, a, this was like a tank of a bike. But you know what? I mean, self-centered thought. I want to learn how to ride that bike. Eventually, I did it. And it was painful. So I'm sure you have stories about this. But when we want to do something, we want it badly enough, you know, people telling us that we can't is no obstacle, often. Okay, so they're telling us serenity is what we want to achieve here. Don't let yourself tell yourself that this is impossible. So serenity is achieved when we are able to remain focused single-pointedly on our object of meditation for as long as we wish, with complete clarity, and without any excitement or mental laxity. Wisdom realizing the true nature of reality is cultivated in reliance upon serenity. Okay, without serenity, there's no wisdom realizing the ultimate nature. Forget it. So there's a roadblock right there. Maybe that will entice you. Get rid of the roadblock. Only when this achievement of serenity is combined with the wisdom that knows reality can you begin to remove the mental afflictions that keep us bound in samsara you then have great opportunity to make significant spiritual progress and will achieve the enlightened state of complete Buddhahood. So Lama Tsongkhapa goes on to tell us something that we know truly. We know this deep. An uncontrolled mind that is scattered, going here and there, can't serve as a foundation for wisdom, can't serve as a foundation for anything, really. 
So when we properly employ the techniques for developing serenity taught in the Lamrim Chenmo, we can achieve great stability. And then, of course, the analogy is given that's quite familiar. Just as a wild, untamed elephant can cause a lot of damage, if your mind is out of control, it, it can cause you a great many problems in this life and in the next and in future lives. In contrast, a tamed elephant can help us do many things, and the same is true for our mind. So once we've trained our mind to concentrate, it can serve as the basis for developing insight. So then children goes on to say that uh, in cultivating serenity, then we're going to be immediately encountering these five faults or obstacles. In fact, we're encountering many of them right now, but when we're actually at the point of cultivating, cultivating serenity and we have all the conditions together, then we have to know what these are in advance and we have to know what the antidotes are. So there's eight antidotes to these five faults. And interestingly enough, these eight antidotes that combat the five faults are the same in both sutra and tantra. And the general goal of practicing serenity is the same in sutra and tantra, and that goal is to attain a spontaneously stabilized mind with mental and physical pliancy. And then uh, Geshe Sopo goes on to give us a bit of history of what Lama Tsongkhapa Lama Tsongkhapa encountered at the time he was teaching in Tibet. And at that time he discovered that there were very few people there who were familiar with great Indian, Indian texts on how to cultivate serenity. So there were very few people who knew how to practice it properly. And he said that qualified masters were as rare as stars visible during the daytime. And some of his contemporaries apparently were making these wild claims about their personal accomplishments, but he saw and heard from their statements that they actually didn't know how to meditate, they didn't know how to practice, they surely didn't know how to achieve mental stabilization. So once a practice is grounded on the teachings and detailed explanations of both Sutra and Tantra are given, then we've got the tools that'll help us overcome any obstacles that arise. So what Lama Tsongkhapa encountered is that there are many people who at his time there in Tibet were thinking that thinking and analytical processes were bad. You just shouldn't do it. And some people often blame books and intellectual thought for their mental problems. They avoided the great teachings because for them it was too much work to study them. They were hoping that there was some small and easy-to-follow instruction manual that would be more effective. I think we all have moments of thinking that, too. Such misguided people said from the very beginning that you should just meditate. Just sit down and meditate. Just, just do that. You don't need to think. You don't really need to contemplate. You don't really need to use logic. Just sit down and meditate. Whatever that meant. But the truth is, is that serenity will never be achieved if you follow that approach. It's an unattractive method, what we're going to hear for the lazy. It may, and you know, if you just sit down and meditate, maybe you can get your mind quiet. Probably you can, just being still. It may give you some transitory feeling of some peace, but it's not going to get you anywhere. Successful serenity practice requires, requires preparation. We've got to familiarize ourselves with the teachings and with the great teachers of this practice. So as Lama Tsongkhapa says, a strong aspiration to engage in serenity comes from contemplating the benefits of the practice. And if we see the benefits of cultivating serenity, then we'll have strong faith or trust in the practice. And then he says, don't be fooled, though. It's not blind faith. We've got to understand the benefits. And when we see the benefits from the smallest to the greatest, we will be attracted to practice it. And as this attraction becomes stronger, the aspiration to practice will get stronger. And then as we have this aspiration to practice, then this will also, um, the aspiration will be grown, combine it with joyous effort. And with joyous effort, we'll be even more committed to practice. So this is why it's so important to right now study and reflect 
and meditate on the teachings. And Lama Sankapa at this point says, it's not appropriate at this point just to jump into something like a serenity practice without any previous training. You won't understand what you're doing, and you'll give up easily, and you'll even head off in a wrong direction. So I thought I'd share with you a, a very honest story written by a woman who probably is echoing all of our thoughts at some point where we just want to go in a cave, right? Just get away from it all, find a cave. Maybe Jetsuma Tenzin Pomo's cave is available next month, and just go, right? We don't have much practice, but just want to go. This woman is very brave, and she's very honest, and she wrote this little story. She's titled the story, My Fiasco at the Secluded Solitary Meditation Cave. So she says this, a few years back, out of the blue, I decided that I was ready for solitude and a high meditative practice. I booked myself a solitary cabin with a particular group whom at the time would let you do the cave week retreat. You could do this if you had taken their seven-day program, which I'd done earlier. And now she says in brackets, I think they've changed the guidelines now, and I think you'll see why. So she was ready. She was just going to go and get her cave in that little cabin. The day before I left for the retreat, I had an argument at work for a reason I don't even remember now, but at the time it seemed very real. I had the image of my boss in my mind the whole way I drove to that retreat cabin. I had feelings of hatred, anger, and disappointment. And those feelings just grew as I got closer to that retreat cabin. Not even the Dharma teachings on the CD player in my car could <laughs> settle me down. I was mad. As soon as I arrived at my beautiful little retreat cabin, I got in the room and in about 10 minutes, I felt like I was in jail. The explanations were clear. I was to be alone and walk only to a certain area. There was a stupa that I could circumambulate only if I wasn't terrified of the bears in the area. And if I needed anything, I could leave a note at a certain place in the path. And this note would be picked up once a day. Food and water would be delivered to me twice a week, but I was encouraged to bring as much as I could with me to minimize the disruptions. The cabin, as it turned out, had no electricity or heat. I had to actually keep a fire going and use the gas stove to make simple food that, I would, that would aid me in my meditation. I was also to abide by all the center's codes of meditation. So it all sounded great when I was at work, from the point of view of a stressed-out woman at the end of her wits. Being alone seemed perfect. Nobody else to bug me, nobody to report to, no external world obligations. I could just sit down and meditate. How great's that? Well, there was one simple, single detail that I forgot. My mind was coming with me. I was barely able to meditate one hour out of the whole day for the first four days. Everything distracted me, the coyotes calling each other at night, the cold, the bad food, my cooking, the stove, my body, which began to look weird to me. I don't know how she got that if you're in a retreat cabin. I don't think there's mirrors. The feeling of being in jail just grew day by day. And then there were the memories of work. On the fourth day, I got a visit from the advisor. And knowing that she was coming, I actually got in an hour and a half meditation. <laughs> when the advisor came in, she said, she smiled at me. She said, oh, there's a nice energy in here. <laughs> I think she was lying. I think she just wanted to encourage me. She could tell how miserable I was. The next day, I walked to the main meditation hall with determination, and I found her, and I said, look, I'm leaving. I've had it. I can't stand it. I've got to get out of here. I can't bear this. And she suggested joining the meditation course that was going on at the time rather than just leave, which is what I did. So I didn't care about sleeping on a mat in the meditation hall. I was among people again, and I was out of jail. I was out of my mind. So she says as advice to anyone thinking about this, the thought of retiring to a meditation cabin or cave sounds good when you first think of it. But we must remember that we need some training to do this. And now I see that we need years of training, maybe a lifetime or two of training, and then in the future, when I think I'm ready, but probably not in this life, I might go back to that little cabin.
I've heard numbers of times that often monks who go through the Geshe program then have this dream of heading off to the mountains in the cave. And I've heard from many people that that dream never happens because they can't get the conditions together. Or they actually do get to the cave or the little hut. And even a Geshe doesn't yet have all the causes and conditions in their mind to stay there. So let's just keep on. We don't have a cave, but we've got our teachers. So let's see what Venmo Chojin says. If you don't know all the benefits of a practice, you won't be inspired to do it. Without aspiration, you won't persevere in the practice. In short, it's important to understand why serenity is so valuable and what its benefits are, what you need to do to attain it and how long it'll take to develop it, what kinds of hardships and sacrifices may be involved, and how to address all those. So what are some of the great benefits of achieving serenity? So I'll share just a few things right now from Jewel of Ornament. This is a Lamarum text written by Gampopa, who actually was a student, a principal student of Milarepa, and he lived from 1074 to 1153 CE. And His Holiness the Dalai Lama writes a beautiful foreword in this book, and His Holiness points out that this book is an excellent book, and it reflects the blending of two um, systems of teaching, the Kadampa tradition and the Mahamudra tradition. But he says it's an excellent Lamarin text, and that it were, we will do well to read from this. So this is um, from the chapter that addresses the perfection of meditative concentration. And he says this, Even though you may have the practices of generosity and so forth, it is called scattered if you are without meditative concentration. Under the influence of scattering, your mind is wounded by the fangs of the afflicting emotions. That line just gets me. Wounded by the fangs of the afflicting emotions. Engaging in the conduct of bodhisattvas says, For the person whose mind is distracted, you dwell between the fangs of the afflicting emotions. Furthermore, without meditative concentration, you can't achieve clairvoyance, and without clairvoyance, you can't benefit others. And the lamp for the path to enlightenment says, Without the accomplishment of calm abiding, one cannot achieve clairvoyance. Likewise, without the power of clairvoyance, one cannot benefit sentient beings. Now, there's a number of things in here that are really fantastic. I'm just looking at the time here. I think if there's time at the end, I may come to one or two of these. So we'll continue with what Venerable Children says. When your mind is fully controlled, you will have the desire and ability to engage in virtuous act actions and refrain from non-virtuous activities. Serenity is the basis for a peaceful and enlightened mind. When you achieve serenity, your mind will be happy, content, and filled with delight. Your body will also experience a type of bliss, and with this physical and mental pliancy, your mind is suitable for work to achieve the higher goal of enlightenment. Only on the basis of serenity can you cultivate real insight into the nature of reality. Another benefit from cultivating serenity is gaining supernormal powers that facilitate your ability to help sentient beings. So these supernormal powers include things like miraculous acts, which are the ability to turn one body into many, That'd be really handy around here. To transform large into small. I'm not sure what that means. Does anyone know what that means? Large, turning large into small? Your body? So when it's offering service time, it could shrink and just go somewhere and hide. Good deal. To fly, to dive into the ground, to walk on water. We can develop divine eye, clear audience, to know others' thoughts. We can remember our former states and lives. We can know the knowledge and death and rebirths of other people and ourselves. And of course, you know, what I was just saying, you know, hiding when it's offering service time is not the point of this. That would be the point if we weren't, you know, growing our true aspiration to become fully awakened for all sentient beings. So bodhisattvas use the, these abilities to work for the benefit of others. So these five faults, what are they? Number one is the big one. Starts with the L. Laziness. 
Number two, forgetting the object of meditation. Number three, which is two things, laxity and excitement. Number four, not applying the antidotes. Number five, over-application. So quite honestly, you know, these are problems with cultivating serenity, but for sure the first four or the five are problems with doing any kind of meditation. So these are really valuable for us to know. And if we can really get familiar with these and get some facility with these, you know, once we're at the point of doing serenity, we'll have this and it'll be much, much easier. So, what I love about how Venerable Children presents this, and I really focused on hers for this first part, is that, and probably just, just because I know her so well, is that when she presents this, she's just doing it from her heart. She wants us to get it. Like, come on. I want you to make progress in this life. I'm going to do everything I can. I'll tell you it in so many ways so that you can get it. So, there's three forms of laziness. And these are her words. The first one is manya. I'll do it tomorrow. It's the weekend. I've been working hard all week. I'll just wait and do it later. There's plenty of time. So it's this lazy mind that is not really attracted to unwholesome actions. It's not like we're doing something really negative. But we're just like, ah, I've just got to get a little rest in. I've been working hard, you know? I've been on that tractor 12 hours. Probably not. But it feels like it. <laughs> it was 30 minutes. But it feels like 12 hours, you know. So we don't really want to do a particular practice. We may have interest in it. Yeah, I should, you know. I should go and do that. I've got about an hour right now. <sighs> but there's time tomorrow. So, you know, we just don't really get to it. Or we're, maybe we're just so enthralled with worldly distractions that we just don't have any wish to get to the cushion period. So that's the first one, manana. Do it later. The second one is we're just so busy, extremely busy. As Venerable says, the busiest of the busy. So when you've got that kind of mental state going, don't tell me I'm lazy. Look what I'm doing here at the Abbey. Can't you see? Look. I'm still working and it's 10 o'clock at night. I'm still at the computer. It's midnight and I'm still translating. No, I'm just kidding someone. No, what it really means is we're really, we're really doing so many things that there's just no time for virtuous things. We're just, you know, we're multitasking. Isn't that what it's about today? You know, you can, you can teach a class in school and be on your phone at the same time. You can be, you know, doing some research on a computer and reading a novel at the same time, the novel that you wanted to read last summer. So we have no time for anything, because we're just so busy. We're not lazy, we're just busy. But the problem with this kind of busyness, which is actually laziness, is that we're so busy doing other things, there's no time for Dharma practice. And then we might you know, get to the point where we're at the cushion at 10 o'clock at night, because we've volunteered at six different places since we got off work. And we're so exhausted, we're passing out once we hit the cushion. And then we're so busy doing our job, which we're doing very well, but when we get up in the morning, we wake up tired. Have you ever had that happen? I used to wake up tired all the time when I was teaching. I'd wake up exhausted. And so, of course, I woke up exhausted. I can't, I can't meditate right now. I've got to get to school and do more things. And get back at night, you know, and I'm just too tired from school because I've been working so hard all day and I'll, I'll meditate tomorrow. So those two go hand in hand, I think. And then if we just let that run, where we're just the busiest of the busy, and then when it's time for us, if we have the luxury of knowing that we're going to die, then I think, as in children reminds us, we have a lot of regrets. We're going to be looking back and thinking, you know what, there are all of these opportunities in my life where I could have really gotten serious about the Dharma, and I was so busy working, climbing that corporate ladder. And she says, as we've heard her say many times, she's never heard anyone say as they're approaching death that they wish they would have worked more hours of overtime. What people typically talk about is that they wish they would have, you know, especially if it's really close, made the effort to forgive people in person or to, you know, let go of regrets, things they didn't do and wish they had done. 
or to have been more generous. So we don't want that to happen. The third aspect of laziness is discouragement. Now she spends a lot of time on this one. We know this well. Is there anyone who's gone beyond discouragement in this room? Because you should be sitting here. So she spends a lot of time on this one, and I'm going to read to you word for word what she says because it's so heartfelt. And I think we need to hear this again and again because I fall to this one all the time. And, you know, what am I doing? Am I not believing my teacher? So let's, let's hear what she says again about discouragement. We say to ourselves, the path is too hard. I can't do it. Well, tell me, what do you say? What do you say when you're discouraged? Started too old. Started when I, I was too old. Mm-hmm. Why bother? Keep on making the same mistakes. Keep on making the same mistakes. I'm not smart enough. It's too much. Too much. I have too many hindrances. I'm inadequate. I don't understand it. I can't do it. I'm incapable. The path is too hard. The result is too high. Everyone else can become Buddha, but not me. So... As she says again and again, generating serenity with that kind of attitude, it's impossible. We won't even try. So we make ourselves discouraged by the way we think. It's not an external situation, it's a mental state, and we make ourselves discouraged. We're lying to ourselves, she says. We lie to ourselves. When we say this, we're lying. But the problem is, sometimes I don't believe I'm lying when I tell myself that. I'm convinced I'm telling myself the truth. And we don't recognize our own good qualities and our own potential. We make ourselves lazy in talking to ourselves like this. So first of all, we've got the problem of laziness. And then we make ourselves more lazy by saying that we're lazy and that we're incapable. So she says these kinds of self-denigrating thoughts, we have to stop. And we have to say very clearly, now she's telling us what to do. So I'm telling myself, listen to this. You have to say, stop. You have to say to yourself, these thoughts are self-denigrating. They're not true. And she says, you have to confront these thoughts. You have to stop them. And you have to say to yourself, these thoughts are not realistic. You have to stop thinking this way right now. And she says, you have to steer your mind to think about something else. Or, if that doesn't work, steer your mind to recite mantra. You've got to do something, but you can't let those thoughts continue. And if reciting mantra doesn't work, she says, then go and take a break. Because she says, if you don't confront this kind of thinking, you just sort of let it go and you think, oh, it's okay. I'll get to you kind of, I'll get to those thoughts later. She said, they'll just hang on. They will not let go. And they'll get embedded because we keep rehearsing them. If we don't believe in ourselves, then even the words of others won't have an impact. We've all had this. I'm sure we've had it, you know, even when Michelle is here. You know, we hear someone saying something about our good qualities. If we don't believe it, it's just like, yeah, right, you're just trying to be nice. Yeah, right. And then she says, if everybody else has the Buddha nature except for you, and you really think that, then you must be concluding that the Buddha is lying. That's what you must be concluding. Is the Buddha lying? Would the Buddha lie? And then we have to ask ourselves, Does the Buddha lie? I don't think so. So she made this point very strongly. Don't let those thoughts continue. Don't let them. You have to just nail them. So the opposite of laziness is joyous effort, a persevering mind. So it's this kind of mind that's enthusiastic about engaging in virtue. So she says the real antidote to laziness is the perseverance that takes joy in practicing meditation. And when we're able to eliminate laziness through the application of joyous effort, your body and mind spontaneously begin to express enthusiasm for practice, and the fatigue of laziness ceases. Your body becomes subtly joyful about this state. This physical pliancy is most helpful in meditation, and in order to generate this, you need aspiration. So, 
The first antidote to laziness, and there's four of them, so obviously it's a big problem. When you've got four antidotes for one thing, that's sort of getting our attention right off the bat. So Venomal Trojan says we have to have faith and confidence. We have to have it in ourselves. We have to have faith and confidence in our own ability. We have to have faith and confidence in serenity and its benefits. So we study. We learn about serenity. We learn about the benefits and how, how a concentrated mind is peaceful and how it makes gaining other spiritual realizations very easy. And then uh, I noticed as I went through these different sources, as people continue to talk about serenity, they're always coming back to the benefits. Serenity is the basis for a peaceful and enlightened mind. When you achieve serenity, your mind will be happy, it'll be content and filled with delight. Your body will experience a type of bliss. And with this physical and mental pliancy, your mind is suitable for work to achieve the higher goal of enlightenment. Only on the basis of serenity can you actually cultivate real insight into the nature of reality. The union of serenity and insight is the true antidote to all your suffering and problems. Once you have, have strong faith in the benefits of serenity, laziness will subside. You will not want to delay practice for even a moment. And in addition, the things that once distracted us will hold less appeal. Sometimes yogis even forget to eat because they're so engrossed in their meditation practice. So the second antidote to laziness is aspiration. And this is having seen the benefits and having confidence. Then we aspire to do the practice and we aspire to gain serenity. So Venerable Children goes on to say that when you have aspiration, you have this joyous effort that will come to practice. So this is another reason, she says, why it's very important to study and learn about the practice rather than just jumping in and doing it right away. You'll not be interested in doing something if you don't trust that doing it will be helpful. If you don't know all the benefits of the practice, you won't be inspired to do it. Without aspiration, you won't persevere. And in short, again, she says it's important to understand why serenity is so valuable, what its benefits are, what you need to do to attain it, how long it may take to develop it, what kinds of hardships and sacrifices may be involved, and how to address all of these. Then the third antidote to laziness is joyous effort. And this is really an important part of the path. So if we think about the benefits and about our own potential, we have faith and confidence, aspiration follows easily, the mind that's happy because we have faith and confidence, and then this just makes it so that we have this joyous effort. We're enthusiastic. I want to practice. It's not a drag. I want to do this. Then the fourth antidote to laziness is this mental factor called pliancy. And this makes the mind very responsive. It's flexible. It's pliant. It's serviceable. It makes the body easy to manage. And then when the body and mind are responsive in this way, it's easy to focus on the meditation object. So she says this, when you achieve the special joy that accompanies mental pliancy, encouragement to meditate just comes from within. You don't need encouragement from others. You'll be self-motivated. And yet you'll still need to cultivate your enthusiasm for the practice, though. Because even after attaining serenity, you need to urge yourself again and again to remember these teachings so that your motivation doesn't slip. And this is how you work to maintain that kind of level of practice. So she says, pliancy actually is the real antidote. But those first three are going to get us there. Having faith and confidence, aspiration, joyous effort. So the remaining faults. Fault number two is forgetting the instruction. So this means actually that we lose the object of meditation. So we get ourselves to the cushion. We've gotten there. We put our mind in the object. And then, seconds maybe, minutes later, boom, we're off the, off the object of meditation. So, where do you go when you get off the object? What's familiar? Everywhere. Venerable Tarpa gave me a warning when I was going to be helping with the construction of Prajnakot. She said, take a notebook into the meditation hall with you. Ideas will come, you just need to write them down. 
well, okay, so I had Prajna Cottage as an excuse. <laughs> it's over. It's built. I'm still going off. Planning, reviewing, scheming, remembering, regretting. It's just endless. So I guess we need a new building to build. <laughs> and we can have the excuse of, hey, that's why we're off. So she says, it's so difficult to keep our mind on the object, so the antidote to that is mindfulness. And mindfulness is a mental factor that focuses on the object in such a way that the mind doesn't get distracted and doesn't go off onto other objects. So at the beginning of the session, we have to make sure that we understand the instructions for the meditation and we put our mindfulness on the object. Boom! And then during a retreat last year, one of the retreatants asked, well, Okay, so that's the antidote to going off the object, mindfulness. But how do you cultivate mindfulness? And Venerable Churjan eventually came down to, well, it's just practice. You just keep putting your mind on the object. You just keep going there again and again. It's practice. So there you go. Fault number three, it's two things, as Venerable Tarpa just said a few minutes ago. It's these two things of excitement and laxity. And they're put together apparently because they have the same antidote, which is introspective awareness. So with this, with excitement, there's two levels. Um, I'm sure I only know the gross one. So the gross level of excitement is we go off the object and we're chasing an object of attachment. So I'm very skilled at that one. I can I can see that one after a few minutes. And then um, actually what she says is, and this is another bit of advice that shows up probably later on, but it's just making me think of it right now. When we sit down, we should just tell ourselves, for the next certain period of time, maybe it's five minutes, I'm going to keep my mind on the object. I'm not going to waver. This is my goal. And we just stick with it. Subtle excitement. The mind is on the object, but you can feel underneath that it's about ready to go and chase something. I'm not so sure I know that one. I'd like to think I do, but I'm not so sure. And then with laxity, there's gross laxity, where the object's just not clear. That one I know. Subtle laxity, the object is clear, but there's no intensity to the clarity. And so then, for all of these things, the remedy is introspective awareness. But this is actually not the thing that actually directly counteracts either of those, any of those. But when... So she goes on to say that this is not the thing that directly counteracts excitement and laxity, but it's the mental factor that notices that excitement and laxity have arisen in the first place. And that's why it's called an antidote, but it's not really the antidote. So it's this mind, this introspective awareness, is this mind like a spy that continually checks up and sees, are you on the object? Is the intensity there? Is the clarity there? Am I about to get distracted to go off to an object of attachment? So it's this checking mind. Is my mind dull? Is it about to check out and go to something else? So if introspective awareness notices something, then we can apply one of the antidotes. So with gross excitement, we can meditate on impermanence, death, the disadvantages of samsara. So if the excitement is more subtle, we have to loosen the intensity of our focus because sometimes if we concentrate too hard, the mind gets tight. And Venerable Trojan says when the mind is really tight, then this sets up the condition for our mind to get distracted. And sometimes if our focus isn't tight at all, and it gets looser and looser, then it'll go into laxity. So with laxity, we have to tighten the focus or check our posture or make sure that our eyes are open open and not just, you know, closed. And then with laxity, with gross laxity, Venerable Trojan says, if you're having trouble with this and it's just not going away and things are just really dull and your mind is really kind of foggy, then do the meditation of imagining that you're exhaling pollution and breathing in light. And she says, just take a break from that and do that for a few minutes and that'll help with the laxity. So in Geshe Sopa's text, he's, he um, has more time to explore this. And um, he talks about the underlying causes of laxity and, and excitement, which are really interesting. 
So I thought you might be interested to hear this. So Kappa identifies, identifies the causes that give rise to laxity and excitement. So what are the signs of laxity? Not restraining the sensory faculties. Not eating in moderation. Not making an effort to practice rather than sleeping during the early and later parts of the night. Ongoing lack of introspection. Deluded behavior. Oversleeping. Being unskillful. Being lazy in one's aspiration. Perseverance and tension. Giving only partial attention to serenity. Letting your mind stay as though in darkness and not delighting in, the, in focusing on the object of meditation. So he goes on to say, and this is Lama Tsongkhapa, in order to have success during your meditation sessions, you must conduct yourself in certain ways, physically and mentally, between sessions. So we know from Venerable Children's advice too that what we do between sessions is critically important. If your senses are unguarded or your behavior is unethical, it'll undermine your meditation. We, we all know that from our own experience. When we do those kinds of things, we don't guard our senses, then the mind picks up things and brings them right into meditation. If you witness something discouraging or terrible, it may weaken your concentration and resolve. So, you know, there's a reason why on meditation retreat where we're not online, you know, if we're checking the news and we're in a meditation retreat, for sure we're going to encounter something disturbing and terrible. And then... What's going to be in your mind the minute you sit down? Boom, you're right there. The situation of witnessing something discouraging or terrible, this can cause you to fall into laxity. Or say, he says, prior to that, and this is now Geshe Sopa saying, let's say you're not in a meditation retreat, but you're just getting to your cushion, and you've just watched a fast-paced action movie. So instead of uh, focusing on the object of meditation, your object of meditation becomes the movie that you just saw. This will be filled in your mind in great detail. So if we're not restraining the sense faculties, this is a cause for laxity and excitement. The second common cause of laxity mentioned by Asanga has to do with how much we eat. So here's the advice. Leave a third of your stomach empty. I'm not sure how I can determine that. A third. Maybe that just means don't eat until you're totally full to overflowing. Leave a third of your stomach empty when you're going to begin a medita meditation session. If your stomach is full, we know this one, it's difficult to meditate. Eating too much will make your mind sluggish and dull, so it's easy for laxity and finally sleep to overcome you. The third cause for laxity and excitement is having an unhelpful sleep pattern. So he says, night is generally divided into three parts. The evening, which is before midnight, the middle part of the night, and then the latter part, or early morning. So it's good to establish a routine for sleep and practice. Asanga advises us to sleep in the middle of the night. Okay, that's after midnight. You've got that one nailed. <laughs> uh, if you do not have a regular time for sleep, or if you sleep through the entire night, or if you don't sleep in the middle period of the night, it can cause obstacles for serenity to arise. I think I'm hooped right there. A lack of ongoing introspection is the fourth cause common to laxity and excitement. You should always be aware of what's going on in your mind, as well as what you're doing with your body and speech. If you're unaware, who knows what you will do? Introspection is on the watch for the signs of laxity and excitement in their imminent arising. It is the first line of defense. So a lack of introspection is the cause for the arising of these obstacles. So there's some good hints there. The final cause of laxity, specifically mentioned by Asanga, is not delighting in focusing on the object of meditation. So it's, it's similar, he says, to the previous cause in some ways, and it refers to the fact that you're actually content with laziness and you mostly want to sleep. This is sometimes a direct cause of laxity and sometimes an indirect cause of laxity. This kind of attitude, he says, should always be avoided. So very quickly now, the fourth fault is the non-application of antidotes. So 
our introspective awareness has noticed that we're going off, that there's excitement or laxity. But guess what? We just don't do anything about it. And the antidote, of course, is to apply the antidote. Sadly, I know that one. The fifth one is over-application of the antidote. So you've already gotten rid of whatever fault it is, but you continue to apply the antidote too much. So Venerable Children explains it beautifully with this very simple example. So you have a child running all over the place, and you don't do anything. That's the fourth problem of not applying the antidote. But then you've calmed the child down. So you've applied the antidote. But then you continue to place restrictions on the child, even though they're sitting there calmly and they're not doing anything, and you just keep at it and just keep applying, you know, just keep telling them to settle down, settle down, settle down, and then you bother the child. So in continuing to apply the antidote when we're already settled, your mind just goes off and you're disturbed again. So I thought I'd share something that Venerable Trojan shared. I think she did this in the retreat maybe last year in How to See Yourself as You Really Are. And I think this will give us a little bit of hope. And she has a friend who has done some retreats. And this one particular friend did a serenity retreat where she just had one month. And she is sharing what happened for her. And it is encouraging. So this is what she said. So for this one month retreat, she had all the conditions together. And uh, when she first sat down the first week, there were just so many thoughts percolating through her mind. It was just like a dam busting, she said. It was just really discouraging. The thoughts are just full on, full force. And she says, if you're thinking like I am, at that point I realized when that was going on, hey, I'm not alone in this. This is probably just normal. This is just normal. I'm going to just keep going. And then she said, after a while, you can start, if you just keep at it, though, you can actually step back after a while, and you can watch the thoughts without jumping in and following them, or believing them, like we all do. And she said, you can start applying the antidotes. And as you do this, as you apply the antidotes, so you've got to know what they are, then this waterfall, this crushing waterfall of thoughts and distractive thoughts begins to turn into a stream that's more manageable. And then she says, then there's more space between the thoughts. And then you can start to get a look at the nature of your thoughts. And then she says something that's very cool, that these thoughts are just energy. And we've heard Venable Children say this. The thoughts are just energy. They're just some kind of blip of, blip of energy going through the mind. And when you start looking at, like, looking at them like that, Instead of going, oh, that person's mad at me, I think they're mad at me, I'm horrible, oh, now they'll never talk to me again. Instead of doing that where we believe the thoughts, you just look at them as energy and like, oh, that's interesting. And then as we continue to do this, it calms the mind. We don't have to believe everything we think. And then we can just see these as thoughts arising and ceasing. And he says, with practice, if you stick with it, then there's more space between the thoughts. And she said at the end of this month-long retreat, she could see that she did get some distance from her thoughts, and she did get some mental clarity. And Venmore Children said this person was not bragging. She was just, you know, sharing what happened for her. And that we don't have to really believe these thoughts, that you can get a taste for the fact that the mind is luminous and clear, and the mind doesn't have to be filled with the garbage that we think it's filled with when we follow the thoughts. So I thought that was encouraging. So I'll finish right now with how bodhisattvas are around serenity. Bodhisattvas strive to achieve serenity because it has a special benefit. And once you have that mental power, here's a very important point to keep in mind. Once we have this power of serenity, the senses follow the mind. And usually it's the other way around. The mind chases after whatever information is supplied to it by the senses. And under those circumstances, our mind is always distracted. And this is the common state of the mind in the desire realm. 
But when serenity is achieved, your mental power is so strong that the sense's power to disturb your mind is eliminated. And this is why Tsongkhapa calls this meditative state of serenity a mental king, because with it you rule your mind. All the accompanying mental factors are like the subjects of the primary mind that is king. Thus, when you have serenity, you can achieve many yogic skills to benefit all sentient beings. And that is why the sutra says bodhisattvas strive to achieve serenity. So, I was reading away. I don't have much of this in my own experience, but maybe something inspired you from what our teachers are constantly sharing with us and, you know, wanting us so much to attain. And uh, let's go for it, because we can.